You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Good morning and welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church. I'm glad you've decided to join us on this 22nd day of March as we meet in a different fashion from our normal. We live in unprecedented times. The effects of the coronavirus pandemic is staggering and likely has already changed your normal. With respect for our national and state leaders, health officials and others that are helping us navigate this particular time in our history, we want to be diligent to be wise and we want to show compassion. It's an opportunity for us to step into the world and show them the love of Christ. So, therefore, we're going to make some continued changes to our schedule. We're not going to meet as a church body, whether for Bible study or worship, until Sunday, April 5th, when we gather together again as the body of Christ. Obviously, this could change depending on the circumstances in our nation. But we want to have that plan in place. Until then... We'll be communicating with you through Facebook, through email, through phone bites. We'll, we'll use our website and Right Now Media as all part of that communication package to get you information. Please continue to pray hard. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing that we can do is to pray. And then give generously and look for ways to share Jesus' love with those around you. We are right now in a season of collecting funds for our Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Missions. This offering is one of two Southern Baptist convention-wide offerings that we take to help support missionaries. 100% of the proceeds go to our missionaries and help them on the field to share Christ. Renamed in 1934 from the Home Missions Offering to the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering was a way to recognize Annie's role in supporting missions, praying for missions, and doing missions. So I would encourage you to give. Our church goal is $4,000, and I would love for you to meet some of those that are serving on the field in North America. Watch this video. I love Pittsburgh, I really do. I love the narrative that makes up Pittsburgh. This is the city that built America and the world. Most people identify themselves with a building or with a religion. What is amazing is when we preach the true gospel, we preach relationship, not religion. We have united here with an army of church planners and wives and families who are together preaching Jesus all over the city. My first call was to plant a healthy, multiplying church here in the city of Pittsburgh. We knew that God was doing something that was bigger than us. And we started to ask ourselves, what could we do towards a citywide vision of of seeing churches planted all over the city of Pittsburgh? And God began to open the door for that influence. When you have a team coming together, that's how our cities are gonna be changed. And so as we come into the city of Pittsburgh, you have a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of people, new outsiders coming in, 
those who've been here generational for years and years and years, Pittsburghers who've um, gone through the, the steel industry crash. And in order for us to reach these people, we need a diversity of pastors. Those first three to five years are really tough for a church planner. And, and we want to make sure that when a church planner comes into a new city, we try and equip them, not just with the friendships, with the brotherhood, with the coaching, but also with the financial resources for them to begin to reach people in their city because we truly believe we're stronger together. So when people give to missions, it's a game changer. This offering gives those church planners a generosity boost to get that mission up and going. And this generosity is truly changing lives. As we begin this morning, I would encourage you to pull out your discussion guide and the message guide that you can use to follow along as we look at this section of 1 Peter chapter 3. So the question comes, how does a church family continue to have unity when they cannot physically be together? That's a question that we wrestled with in staff and we understand the importance of community. But there's also a piece of this that we have to navigate because we cannot get together. COVID-19 has stifled our ability to show up regularly to greet, to hug, to high-five, to encourage, to study, even to send out missionaries from this place. In fact, I'm tempted to ask you, just so we can be together, to put your hand on the screen. Well, maybe not. That may be a little bit too much. However, there may be some of you because of the condition that we're in now where we cannot meet, meet, there may be some of you that have regrets about your own attendance over the past months now that the option of getting together is no longer available. So here's some things to remember as we move forward and look at this passage. First, you cannot go back, you, nor can you dwell in the guilt of what is past. Repent and move forward. Secondly, your relation to, relationship to God must become paramount. God never asked you to be a part-time follower. In fact, His invitation to follow me was, come full-time and follow me. The good news is His invitation still stands. Come follow Him. Thirdly, God will provide the opportunities for us to interact and changes for us to minister in unique ways during this crisis. It may require you to be more inten intentional about praying, more intentional about seeking God. Then He will reveal those impactful occasions in your life. Fourth, when the crisis subsides, there will be a letdown in how hard we crave community and ministry. God will open doors for new methods of sharing the gospel and also provide opportunities for you to serve. So this is when this is over, I don't want us to abandon what we are, have accomplished during this interim time because this is challenging us to, to grow in different ways. And so when we get back together, we need to be excited about what God is doing, but what He has done, and then what He will do going forward in the future. 
So let's review a couple of things from 1 Peter as we get into this. You know, we are studying this, and this is a letter from Peter. He's one of the 12 apostles to Christian exiles. Many of them left Rome and were sent to basically Asia Minor, and they were living there trying to live in a place that they weren't familiar with. Response to, the, to living in a culture of persecution, skepticism, and isolation. Now, we're a little bit familiar with that at this point. So Peter describes how we and the exiles can influence our communities in a way that Christ, that will allow Christ to live through us. And, and that comes in, in many ways through our behaviors and our actions. Lastly, we've discussed authority. For several weeks, we've looked at governing authorities. We've looked at daily authorities and the authority that takes place in the home. Each authority helps us gauge how open we are to God's authority. Our response to authority is always through the filter of Jesus. His response to authority, remember he was under the Father's authority, and how we access or, or assess who is in charge of our heart. Is God really on the throne of our heart? So today, we're going to continue in this journey this trail of making a difference for the cause of Christ in the world around us. So catch that. We're going to make a difference for Christ in the world around us, and it's going to come through two main ways, how we, we relate to one another and how we respond to our community. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And we'll start there. It says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So let's just stop there for a moment because in this place we find five characteristics of a robust church. And when we say robust, we're talking about a church that is actually doing something for the cause of Christ in a place that may not be, uh, may not be open to hearing about Christ. Remember where the exiles lived, and so Peter is telling the Christians, this, these characteristics ought to be characteristics of yours and the church. And so the first one is unity of mind or to have one mind. Uh, it doesn't guarantee freedom from disagreement. And that, that's where we kind of mistake this idea of unity. If, if unity can have disagreement, that's okay. But we tend to look at unity as never having disagreement. And that's just not feasible. I mean, you have an opinion, I have an opinion, and we may differ at times, and we can still walk in unity and disagree about something. The problem is, when we seek unity in lieu of even having a discussion where disagreement occurs, then we put on this mask of false unity. Various interpretations of a virus and how to respond would be an example of that. A poor example would be arguing over paint color in a church, and it's one of the reasons that when some decisions are made, it's not opened up to the floor of the church for discussion. It's done within a smaller group of people. For instance, the finance team is responsible for the stewardship of our funds. We don't bring every decision to the church body. 
Same with personnel and, and other, other ministry teams in our church. It's not put on the floor for discussion. It has been delegated to a small group of people so that they can wrestle with the issues and make a wise decision. And the question is, at this point, when we talk about unity of mind, let me ask this. Is it important for your voice to be heard every time? Is it? That's, that's where you have to ask this, the question, is it about me or is it about the church? Is it about my desires or is it about something bigger than me? Philippians 2.2 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now listen, listen to what Paul writes, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he actually uses the word mind twice in that. And for us, when we talk about being of the same mind, we're talking about the idea and the concentration of us being a church that is here to spread the gospel of Christ to those that are ultimately without hope apart from him. The second thing in, in this verse is sympathy. This just means pity towards somebody else's misfortune. It's not empathy. Empathy is the idea that, that I can really understand. Sympathy is I look and I look at your situation and I, I feel for you, but I don't know that I understand all of what you're going through. I can't exactly relate. Um, it was interesting when I was at my last church, um, both of our kids were teenagers and and so Stephen and Becca were go, would go through things at different places and, and I would stop in to see um, the pastor or the worship pastor and I would walk in the office and I would begin to talk about what the issue was at my house. And um, there were times when they would just sit back and they would begin to laugh. You know, and I'm, I'm taking it very seriously. It's a hard thing for me and, and worried about my kids. And, and they sit back and they just start laughing and, and just reassure me it'll be okay. We understand. We, they could empathize with where I was because they had already been through it. But even if they hadn't, they could sympathize with the agony that was happening on the inside. And you may say, that was pretty cruel. Well, if you know those guys, um, they were lending their support to me in a different way than just coming up and hugging me. They were telling me that I was going to survive this and our family would survive this. See, Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. These guys came alongside me. The third thing in this passage is brotherly love. Philadelphos, if you will. It's, it's like a brother. Now, we may fight within the body of Christ. In fact, when I was growing up, I fought with my brother all the time. In fact, I think our last wrestling match, I was probably 25 years of age, and, and he was 22, and we were wrestling in the living room until my mom put a stop to it. It's mostly because we were beginning to destroy the house. But, and we would fight, and we would, we would wrestle, and we would knock heads and argue and do all those things that brothers do. But at the end of the day, it was, it was about being connected and so if there was an outside influence that came against me or my brother, we would step in alongside and show love by supporting. And so what Peter's writing, he's saying, you need to understand that there may be some that will have some things against the church. In fact, Satan is the accuser and the deceiver. 
is also picking a fight, and we ought to stand in unity against Him. The fourth thing is to be tender-hearted or kind-hearted. Now I want to make a statement. Coldness and distance is not a characteristic of someone who claims Christ. It is not an extrovert, introvert, or uh, I'm from this part of the country, therefore I can do these things and get away with it. That's not what Peter is calling them to. He's calling them to be tender-hearted, not to be mean, not to be abrasive. Galatians 5.23, in the middle of that verse, says that one of the, fruit of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. And that ought to characterize our life, to be tender-hearted. And the last piece of this five-part characteristics of a robust church is to have a humble mind. Maybe a way to put this is, what do you think about you? Are you humble and proud of it? Not just the outward display of humility, but an inward attitude as, as well. So we can put on the outward display, but on the inside be wrestling with, oh, I wish they would get their act together, and not have a humility on the inside. Do you remember what Jesus talked to the Pharisees about? Because they had, had the, they had the outer garments of being put together. They had the mask. They, they, could, they could fool anybody that was walking alongside with their piety. However, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. That's, that's a little strange, isn't it? Well, if you're standing next to a graveyard and every, every gravesite looks pristine and it's, and it's clean, we have to understand that that's the top part. That's the outer part. But what does he say? On the inside, they are dead man's bones. And so we have to question, if we talk about having a humble mind, the outside may show one thing, but what does the inside, what is that about? And how does that look? To have a humble mind means allowing the Holy Spirit to work on the inner part of us. And so we're to do the, have these five things as characteristics of church, and, and the church is us. Finally, all of you, and that's everybody, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Then I want to move on to two antidotes for contagious exposure. The first one is to seek peace. Look what it says. We'll continue from verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let's, let's stop at that point. Let's talk about these two antidotes for a contagious or for contagious exposure. The first one is to seek peace. We, we find that in verse 11. He says, seek peace and pursue it. You see, wrong behaviors do not give anyone a license for revenge. An African proverb says this, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. Here's what 
God says, and, and this is what he seeks, and it's God's response to seeking peace. Here's what it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. First thing is, his eyes are on us. You, you know what that means when God's eyes are on us? You remember having kids and them saying, hey, watch me, watch me. Come, come look at me, see what I'm doing. And what do you do as a parent or a grandparent or a guardian? What do you do? You stop and you focus on them and you look at them. And, and as you're doing that, there's this, there's this degree of pride and this, this love that, that comes forth. It's the idea that the kids understand when you're looking at them, there is security, there is protection, and there is pride because of ownership. And so it says that as we seek peace, his eyes are on us. The second thing, his ears are open to our prayer. And that means that there's a freedom to communicate with God. Thirdly, his face is for us. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, and obviously I can't see you this morning. As we do this by video, it, it allows you to maybe even watch this in your pajamas, which if you want to do that, that's fine. Um, anyways, his face is for us, and, and when I look out on Sunday mornings, uh, it's interesting to watch the faces of those in the congregation, whether it's during our time of singing or during the time of the message. Because there are some where you can tell the face is for you. But there are others that are sitting there, and I don't know whether it's confusion or irritation, but it's like your face is against. And so it's a way of thinking about this, that God's face shows that He is for us when we do what is right. And then this verse says, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God's face is for us when we do what is right. The what-if question that drives us crazy from this, when we start talking about those that would harm us and us wanting to possibly repay or revile it back against somebody, the, the thing that drives us crazy is this question, what happens if I don't see justice? Is it our responsibility to enact justice? Or will we trust God's judgments? And that's hard because we want some tangible thing to be present. Here's the question. Are you willing to pray this prayer? Are you okay with echoing the psalmist? This is what he says in Psalm 7, verses 8 and 9. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. And then the psalmist says, righteous God. So he understood that although we may want to be that, that one that pursues justice, it is God who judges rightly and understands the motives of the heart and who is on the throne of the heart. When we seek peace and pursue it, it's as if we see peace. And then you see, we're talking about doing right and seeking peace, even though what is coming against us may be hard to take. We seek peace and pursue it. It's as if we see peace in the distance and we begin to run toward it at full speed. The alternative 
is seeing peace and observing it from a distance. So we have to gauge this. And, and when we talk about seeking peace, it's talking about who do we go to for comfort? Who do we go to for security? And so let me ask you this. Have you spent more time watching the news cycle for virus information, restriction announcements, and economy status checks this week and spent less time with God than you did prior to the coronavirus? Oh, it got very practical at that point. Because many of us have spent tons of time trying to figure out where this virus is going to take us instead of saying, God, I know you're in control. Help me to find my peace in you and to pursue that. And as I deal with those around me, whether I agree with them or not, not to seek revenge, but to understand you are the ultimate judge. The second thing that we find in verses 14 through 17 is to suffer willingly. And I know we've talked about this a little bit in our past study, but let me read this in, in verse 14 and following. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So the first thing we, we find that Peter writes, he says, have no fear of them. Well, the question I have, are, are they worthy of fear? Uh, those that come against you as a Christian or those that come against the church, are they really worthy of fear? This is what Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And he's talking about the ultimate judge, and that's God. We need to have more fear of God than we do of man. And then it says, nor be troubled. Uh, that, that means to be agitated or frustrated. And we only get agitated and frustrated when we seem to lose control. So what do you have control of? The things in your life, if you can list them. Or whom do you have control of? And currently, there are things that we thought we had control of until this time of the virus spreading. Um, we had control of our 401k and, and our retirement, our, our stock market piece. We had control of our health. We had control of, the, of moving around, going to restaurants or, or whatever it happened to be, even coming to church. And so the question, should we fear the coronavirus? Should we fear the effects of the coronavirus or should we trust God through it? Here's what it says. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's to be separated or sanctified, to, to place in a high place. And so the question, who is in control of your heart? 
Note that if, if we cannot control outside circumstances or people's actions and attitudes, what do we control? Well, really, the, the answer is we can only control the place that Christ holds in our heart. Are we willing to allow Him to be on that throne? Having Christ on the throne, your, your personal kingdom, the inner part of you, having Him on the throne of your heart will change the way you respond to the things that you cannot control. And it will likely be illogical to those that are outside the church. Look what it says. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so the, the outside world is not going to understand. They're not going to be, they're not going to see the way you see. They may not act in wisdom as you fall under God's authority. And we need to be diligent to be prepared to make a defense. That, that Greek word is apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. And we have to have this apology, if you will, or this defense for what drives us, and that is the hope that is in Christ. And so why don't we panic? It's because Jesus is in control. I mean, it, I, I watch some news things and hear lately in some video clips, and, and really, if you've been part of this, you need to repent and go apologize, but Christians should not be fighting over toilet paper. That's not our place. We need to have hope in a God that is bigger than the circumstances around us. We have to explain that our hope is not in government or health organizations. As much as we may value them right now, it is only in Christ. And we explain this with gentleness and respect. Not everyone will understand that you're under the authority of Christ. And so we try to guard ourselves from suffering when Peter says, suffer willingly. And we try to protect ourselves when we should trust God as the good shepherd and the protector. Now, what if we applied this idea of protecting ourselves with regards to our own salvation? We'd be in a heap of trouble, wouldn't we? It'd be futile, it'd be stressful, and it would be without wisdom. We need to trust Christ. And so as we seek peace and pursue it, as we suffer willingly, we allow Christ to be on the throne of our heart. So there is, the last thing, one cure available to everyone. Jesus did not deserve to die, but suffered willingly for you and me. Look what it says in starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We'll, we'll just keep going and then we'll come back to it. It says, baptism, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
So if we look at that, we understand there's one cure, and Jesus came and died for us, suffered willingly for you and me. Why? So he can bridge the gap between the holiness of God and the hopelessness of man. He came to bridge the gap between eternal death and eternal life. Now, as I looked at this passage, I understand what Jesus did. Now, I don't know exactly how all the pieces of, of that work, but, but I do understand that Jesus died for me and I can trust him with my life and through him I gain salvation. But, but what I had to wrestle with was this insertion by Peter concerning Noah and his family, those outside the ark and God's patience. And how did that fit into what Peter was trying to share with the exiles? So I think Peter is referring to the end of an era. This is what it said in Genesis 7, 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, and we're not going to get to 600. Don't worry about that. But in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the on the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Known life was changing. It was going to look different. Uh, I've been watching the news this week in, in sports, and there's not a whole lot of sports happening, but probably the biggest story of the week is that Tom Brady's not going to be with the New England Patriots anymore. And can I hear a round of applause? So he's, he's going to Tampa. And I was just in watching some of the interaction with that. And even Jameis Winston, who's been the quarterback in Tampa, said, Oh, my um, why, are you being, why are you coming to Tampa? I mean, it's just funny. But it was, it's the end of an era in New England. The ark and the flood was an end of an era in Noah's day. And then Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. You know how strange that looked. Building an ark, building a boat for water that didn't exist craft here. It says, by this he condemned the world and came, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, God faithfully and patiently waits for response to his invitation. All during the building, God was waiting for a response. And yet the people probably ostracized and criticized Noah along the way in building this ark. And so what do we see in this? When we look at the patience of God in Noah's day, we can also read about the patience of God in the story of the prodigal son, sitting on the porch waiting for the son to come down the road and seeing him and running toward him. So the question is, how patient is God? Is God waiting for a generation to respond? And how long will he wait? Well, if we put the, that in terms of today, is God using the coronavirus to draw us to himself? Is God using the stock market to draw us to himself? Because I believe God can use those things as a way to um, maybe take away the things that where we find security and to place our security in him. And I want to be really careful not to equate those things because God's not going to do the same with the coronavirus or the stock market or anything else like he did in the days of Noah. We have that promise. But is God using this as a means of drawing us back to himself? Seeking peace and willing to suffer is predicated on us applying 
the cure that's already available through Christ. It's as if the cure were there, but we don't always take the medicine. In this case, the prospect when you turn away from Christ is that healing is impossible. Apart from Christ, there is no healing and there is no hope. And so I want to wrap up with some questions. We've looked at 1 Peter. We said there's five characteristics of the church, a robust church. There, there's basically two antidotes to, to Christian living. And then there's one cure for it all as we have Christ on the throne of our heart. And so the four questions are this. One, how will you respond to God? Second question, does Jesus have authority in your life? And does he possess the throne of your heart? Thirdly, is your present anxiety elevated because you still want control? And then lastly, how will you live in health during this time of uncertainty? See, God is there. God's not disappeared. He's still present. He's still the one is the refuge, the strong tower, as the psalmist writes. He's still the one that we can lean into and lean on. Even if all the toilet paper shelves are empty, God is God. And so I want to make a couple of suggestions as we wrap up this morning. First one is be faithful to the body. He's saying, I mean, it's, it's part of that unity piece that we talked about in the very first verse. Be faithful to the body. So find ways to connect and give and pray. The secondly, second thing is to care exceedingly. Call, write, encourage. I would, in, I would say use Realm or on Realm. Um, use that as a directory for a prayer and for contacting those within the body of Christ. And then thirdly, remain committed. Um, this manner of doing church and doing life will end. And so you're going to have to remain committed to meeting like this. And it's going to take some extra effort. It's going to be different. As this normal has been adjusted, we will need to adjust our normal again. And so we're going to have to remain committed to what God has called us to, to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ who impact the world. See, that's you. That's me. And we need to be open to God using us as we pursue Him and allow Him to be on the throne of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time this morning and for Your Word. Father, there are a lot of ways to characterize Your church. There are a lot of ways that the church body, the people of God, can respond. And in times where there's crisis and we get squeezed, Sometimes what gets squeezed out is not authentically you. And so others get to see a, a representation of you that's not accurate. And Father, I pray to, that during this time that they will see more of Jesus and less of us. And that as we seek peace and have a defense for the hope that is in us, Father, may we in gentleness and respect share about the love of Christ and how you are God. Father, continue to grow us as a church, stretch us and, and mature us, even in this time where we cannot gather physically together in a church building. And Father, you be glorified and honored in all that happens. God, we love you and we praise you. 
And we pray these things in the mighty and strong name of our Savior. Amen. Well, guys, I'm glad you joined us this morning. And I look forward to us meeting together as soon as possible. Until then, stay diligent in having Christ on the throne of your heart. Have a great day, and may God bless you. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.